0: Welcome to the money morning pastor podcast this podcast is brought to you by a partnership between missio alliance and kairos partnerships good morning jr
1: good morning doug
0: always good to see
1: you yeah buddy it's uh man it's really unprecedented times in the world right now that it is um i know everybody's talking about coronavirus and we're not going to give our scientific opinions we're not going to incite any sort of fear in people um, and some people are just like, I don't want to talk about it. Like, I'm so sick of like trips being canceled and sports being canceled and et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things we want to do is make sure that we're asking questions like, how are we responding to this? I mean, many of us are pastors and leaders, and so people are looking to us. Uh, people uh, other pastors are even asking questions and so we want to just take a couple minutes to just be thinking through like how do we respond to this pastorally how do we respond to this practically and how do we respond to this prayerfully um, i know several weeks ago churches were already thinking through how they serve communion um do we serve communion at all uh do we do pass the peace on sunday mornings um do we meet as a large church you know um, so there's some interesting things going on but um. Yeah, Doug, just as a pastor, what are some thoughts that you're thinking through as it relates to coronavirus um, and all that's going on in this pandemic around the world?
0: Yeah, great question. I, I think in some ways I feel a bit overwhelmed. <laughs> it's like outman and outgunned uh, because you feel like things have been changing so rapidly in the last few weeks. Even living in the greater Philadelphia area, it's like as of last week, there was nothing. And then as of yesterday... There's been a few schools that have started to close yeah, down. There's yeah. a lot of things like that. So I think pastorally for me, I'm thinking through like A, safety, B, uh, which is probably the one of the first things. And then especially just in terms of fear, like noticing fear and anxiety raising within yeah. the congregation. And yep. um, even as you know, our structure is a little bit unique where we have gatherings twice a month and we also have house churches. And so starting to think through what does it look like to be to be people that are, that are caring for those, uh, who, you know, within our community who might be really feeling anxious about this. Um, and then just the super practical steps of like, wow, we have a gathering not this week, but the following week, and it's probably not going to be all gone by then. So what do we do to make sure that we're, 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 we're honoring what is happening in this. Again, you use the phrase unprecedented. Uh, there's not anything that I've ever experienced like this before.
1: no. No, I mean, you know, when Outbreak, the movie came out 25 years ago, right? I mean, that was like, ha -ha, you know, like total fiction. And here we are, you know? And so we need to make sure we avoid the two two extremes on the continuum of like overreacting into hysteria. Mm -hmm. And, dude, this is not that big a deal. So it is a big deal. And it already has some economic and financial realities attached to it. And um, so I, I think it's important that pastors and churches prepare for this. Um, we prepare with uh, calm and with peace, but we also prepare with wisdom. And so we want to encourage you churches, if you have not thought about pre- preparation of everything logistically, you know, practically like communion and pass the peace. And do we have people at the door handing out hand sanitizer and, you know, whatever, uh, or also just things like there's going to be an economic impact. So if people stay away from church, you know, like so just helping churches think through what will some of those financial realities be as well. You know, things like online giving, like a lot of churches have, or do we ever do virtual church in an emergency? So these will be some things. But yeah, I I put this on Facebook a few, a few uh, I think earlier this week. But I, I wanna, I wanna say this. And Doug, you and I were talking about this. Here it is Thursday, and these come out, this comes out on Monday. So we realize like asynchronous recording here. Even in the few days from when we recorded here on Thursday around lunchtime to when we released this on Monday morning, in those few days, we realized like so much has already changed in 24 hours. NBA mm-hmm. season, you know, NCAA is going to play to empty stadiums, right? No travel from the from Europe to the U.S. other than the U.K. I mean, this all happened within like six hours last night. So we know that some of what we say may be dated, even though we're just a few days away from this being live and you hearing this with your ears right now. But if there are any positive elements uh, to the global cor- uh, coronavirus outbreak, it's really helping me understand just the mystery and the power of the incarnation that mm-hmm. God chose to be in proximity with us. As we're telling people, be away from crowds, stay home, you know, d- don't touch people. But that God came down in the form of the person in flesh is pretty uh, amazing to me. On a pastoral level, I think it's important, as we talked about, to prepare and to go through wise precautions. But if we're overcome by fear in this time, we all lose, whether we're infected or not. (laughs) I think that's really... Whether we're infected with the coronavirus or with fear, both are bad. And so we just need to be really careful on that. So... um, and And even too, the idea that like as we talk about not touching and you know handshakes, now we're doing the corona elbow, you know, coronavirus elbow bump or avoiding friendly uh, kisses of friends on cheeks and and things like that, um, I'm just amazed that Jesus was willing to touch those that the culture deemed untouchable, mm. and it made me realize, could those with diagnosed cases of coronavirus be considered modern day lepers? and if so, what are the implications for the church? To that, do we all run and hide? Do we all go um hoard toilet paper? You know, at our, which I think is crazy in and of itself. But but are we? Are there ways in which w- we could be the ones handing out the toilet paper to, paper to people? That we could be the ones actually giving hugs when no one else is. I mean, what what is the response of the church to run in the direction of pain? And fear rather than away from it, like everybody else, so that's been kind of running through my my mind uh, a little bit, and um, I mean lastly I, I'm talking a lot here, but I, I, the last thing that I was thinking of recently, this you know this massive, uncontainable spread of the this virus is awful and unprecedented. but imagine something just wonderfully good that that, that spreads let's call it the good news of Jesus, and the good news of Jesus actually spread like the coronavirus. And it was in the first century, and we just call that the book of Acts. Mm. (laughs) I mean, Acts, Mm. you know, Mm. they tried to stamp it out, and it just popped up elsewhere, and it spread, and it kept going. Isn't that Pentecost? Everybody came together in a large room, in a large area, Mm. and they all started, all of a sudden caught this, quote unquote, gospel virus, where they can speak in the same language, and understand it in their own language, and then return, and then spread it home when they traveled home. I mean, that's, this is what... Pentecost is, but for good.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This is the pandemic on the good scale to see how this, the gospel message spreads. Yeah, Yeah. That's, that's such a, it's such a, it's such a helpful, I feel like that in itself takes the fear and, and puts it back into perspective of like, you know what, like Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'm sure he had pandemics in mind when he's making this do not worry statement and talking looking about flowers and birds and all of these different things. Um, you know, the other thing that just comes to mind is how we live in such a lonely, isolated culture. Yeah. Like what, you know, maybe one of the most helpful things people can do in this season is like schedule time to be face to face with people. Even if, and if not face to face, next to each other, set up screen time, like find yeah. spaces and people that you can talk to. So you're not just isolated. I mean, even thinking like, what does this do to someone who's depressed and like really looks forward to having, you know, being somewhere on a Sunday or being in a, in a place with people and to just feel like. When you're quarantining people into their own home, maybe the best thing the church can do in this is like offer phone calls. I mean, maybe we have to get back to the old school pastor phone calls, you know, like making some calls to some people and checking in.
1: Yeah, no, that's really good. I've been thinking also about people that struggle with um, social anxiety already and with those who are germaphobes. Yes. um, Of those who are OCD, like how is the church really connecting with those who are already under normal circumstances feeling... Um, agoraphobic. You know, they're just afraid to go out in public or be around strangers. You know, how are they doing? You know, no one's really talking much about them. Um, And I do think you're right. That isolation, Doug, I was talking with my father-in-law last night. So this was Wednesday night. um, Bennett, our 10-year-old, he turned 10 yesterday and we took him to the Sixers game. And we thought, oh, it's kind of weird. This is a large crowd. We're told to al- avoid large crowds. Didn't keep anybody away. It was a sellout last night. <laughs> maybe it was because Joel Embiid's return after being injured. Everyone wanted to see him back. Uh, I don't know. But as we drove down, we thought, well, what are the industries, a lot of industries financially being impacted? Who is not being impacted? Maybe even benefiting from this besides Clorox and you know hand sanitizer companies <laughs> and, and things like companies. that. And toilet paper. <laughs> um, Zoom. You know, like more teleconferencing of businesses. Yes. So my pro tip was go buy some Zoom stock quick. Yeah. You're, welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. I only asked for 15%. <laughs> yeah. um, that, I think Netflix yeah. uh, stock is going to go up. I yeah. really do. And libraries. I think people are going to go check out more books because they're home and they're going to be sick of TV. And so those, that's my guess. I don't mm. know. That's not really why this podcast is here to make right. predictions about the future or the stock right. market. but. How can we utilize or help people? You know, we talk a lot about silence and solitude, and we're going to talk about this on, with our guest here in a few minutes. Yeah. Um, what if this is a way that helps encourage our culture to think about silence and solitude and prayer of kind of being forced into it? Because of a pandemic. Are there some positives that help yeah. send us to isolation that's a positive of solitude, not a negative of isolation? So um, that's anyway, good, JR. It's helping that's us really think good. in all sorts of ways that we never thought we'd have to think. <laughs> right. and it was really strange to be at the game and to learn that the NBA season has been suspended at the game, at the Sixers game last night. Sixers-Pistons, when we left, people were going... This is the, maybe the last game of the entire season. It was really strange. That is strange. To think that we may have seen the last game of the Sixer season when no one walking in thought that might be a possibility.
0: You really know how to throw um, an epic 10th birthday for your gee, son. Gee whiz. I mean, it's historic. <laughs> we'll always remember yeah. uh, that unprecedented. So, unprecedented.
1: Unprecedented. Unprecedented times. But more than anything, and I think we can close with this, we don't have to be afraid. I was talking with my son this morning at Bagels before school, my 13-year-old, that calm is contagious. Amen. Hope is contagious. Peace is contagious. And I think as leaders, what we need now is to have the contagion of peace and calm and hope to a world that's freaking out right now. Yes, precautionary measures, yes, to be prepared, but at the same time to be calm because calm is contagious. Hope is contagious. Peace is contagious. And we serve the Prince of Peace. guest today is Alan Fadling, president and founder of Unhurried Living, Inc. in Mission Viejo, California, which inspires people to rest deeper, live fuller, and lead better. He serves as a frequent speaker and consultant with local churches, national organizations, and leaders internationally. He's a trained spiritual director and the author of several incredibly helpful and award-winning books, An Unhurried Life, An Unhurried Leader, and his most recent book, which he wrote with his wife, What does your soul love? We actually referenced Alan's work in the first ever episode of Monday Morning Pastor, and it's good to finally have him here on the podcast today. Enjoy this conversation with our friend, Alan Fadling. Well, Alan, we're really grateful for the opportunity to have you on the podcast here this morning.
2: Well, it's good to be with you, thanks.
1: Yeah, we're. I'm so grateful personally for your ministry. I think we met a few years ago through our mutual friend Tom Smith in South Africa. He said, when you go to Friends University for the Apprentice Institute, you need to connect with Alan Fadling. Oh. And boy, was he right. And uh, I'm so grateful for the ministry that you're doing. Our first ever episode on the Monday mm. Morning Pastor podcast, uh, behind you when we were Zooming on a Zoom call, you had a painting from Mm -hmm. Africa that hadn't been hung up in your office yet. And you uh, shared that with me, and I shared that for just a few minutes on episode one. But I wonder, Alan, would you be willing Hmm. to just unpack that? Because that sounds like the posture of your entire ministry and organization.
2: Yeah. So I had a mentor. Uh, God gave him to me when I was in my 20s, and he was in his 50s. And um, just one of those guys who lived Jesus in his life and in his family and in his ministry. When I first met him, basically he reintroduced a young pastor to Jesus. And uh, I had, my vision of ministry was just uh, the more things on the calendar, the better that, that was my goal. And the more people saying good sermon, pastor Allen, you know, that was what I was aiming for. But along the way, so we, we had a relationship about 30 years before he died just a few years ago now. But, um, I helped him write a book that sort of was his magnum opus, his life's message. The book is titled The Spiritual Formation of Leaders. His name was Chuck Miller. And the cover of that book and the core metaphor of the book was something that God gave him literally on a a hospital bed a number of years before he died when we thought we were losing him. And the metaphor was pitcher, like a pouring water, pitcher, cup, saucer. Plate. And what you want to visualize is the plates on the table, the saucer sitting on the plate, the cup is sitting on the saucer, and the pitcher is pouring into the cup. And what he was trying to do with that sort of really simple tableware metaphor was illustrate how it is that God's filling us, meeting us, making our lives abundant, how that touches our relationships and our work. So the pitcher, he would have said, is God pouring into the cup of our lives. And so obviously, therefore, the cup is us. It's it's Psalm 23, my cup overflows. So one of the things he would always say is, one of our main jobs in leadership or in pastoral ministry is keep our cups upright and where God is pouring. And he would often say, the challenge is often we take our cup and then just start pouring out of our cup uh, on all the needs we see. And we go to this problem, we go to this uh, need, this hurt, whatever. And so pour, 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 and pretty soon instead of my cup overflows, it's my cup is uh, it's empty. And that's a very common experience for those of us in any kind of helping profession, but I especially experienced it in in pastoral ministry. So the thing is then, when God is pouring into the cup of our lives— that overflow, the first place it touches is the saucer, which represents all of the relationships in my life. And so in that metaphor, instead of me kind of taking my own cup and pouring on the saucer, trying to help people, help people, help people, help people, like directly out of my own resources, instead, I'm learning to live my life where God's pouring and filling and overflowing my life. And that is what's touching people and blessing people and helping people. The benefit of that, of course, is that my life doesn't go empty as I'm serving others. I'm Ministry is proving to be the overflow of my life, not the last three drops that I have left. And then as the saucer, the, the place of my relationships, the place of community in which I'm planted, as that becomes a place of fullness, then it overflows into the actual work, the tasks, the planning, uh, all, the, all the things of ministry. And so, again, one of the ways he would take this metaphor and sort of switch it up is that for too many, ministry becomes cup plate. So it's my life and all the things. And I'm just pouring, mm. you know, pouring my energy and pouring my creativity and pouring my insight, pouring my, all, all my learnings onto the plate, the program whereas he would say, no, 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 it's not program first, it's people first. And Mm. and the way I touch the people is by the abundance of God meeting me, meeting my needs. One of the ways I began to kind of twist or turn that, twist is a negative word, but one of the ways he used to turn that is that a lot of times what happens in ministry, and I think in any kind of leadership, is we bring our thirst to our ministry rather than bringing our thirst to God. Mm. And when we do that, we're we're actually, in a weird way, trying to suck something from the people that we're serving or the the work that we're doing. We're trying to fill our own need instead of finding God, meeting us in our need, and from that place of very real abundance, we're serving others. So that's pitcher, cup, saucer, plate.
1: Such a beautiful image. How did that end up being then a painting that someone in Africa created for you?
2: Well, so— it actually turns out that the artist was from the Dominican Republic. Oh, okay. I, I've, okay. I've done a lot of traveling. So Africa is actually yeah. one of the places I go. Okay. But it's a, I could tell a really long version of the story, but I, let me tell a little medium sized version of the story. And that is to say, I began to do some work in the Dominican Republic. A door opened to kind of travel there fairly regularly to be with a group of leaders up in the mountains, not far from Haiti, in a town called Hatabakoa. And so in that town, we would have people, uh, pastors, really, from all over the country come. It's kind of a vacation spot, a little higher, a little cooler, a little bit of coffee country up at that altitude. And we would do some um, spiritual retreats for pastors. And there was one brand-new baby Christian who was a nationally respected artist. So you can imagine him among a bunch of us pastor types, <laughs> slightly different temperament, slightly different perspective, but he was a gift to every single one of those pastors. You know, Again, as you can imagine, his, his creative vision of the world is his kind of uh, unexpected uh, engagement in conversations. And so in a sense, those retreats became uh, an element of his discipleship. And at some point I shared this metaphor because, you know, my mentor had given it to me and it really captured him. And then because I knew my mentor was getting close to the end, he was getting close to 80. His health had been challenging. I asked him if I kind of, in a sense, uh, I asked him if he would be willing to paint something that captured the essence of this metaphor. And this is what he painted.
1: Wow. Wow. That's beautiful well i know that this idea of unhurried living of going out coming out doing ministry out of the overflow of what god's done instead of striving it's receiving giving god access and then overflowing so and it's important to us as well and to many of our listeners but when was the moment for you that you said and maybe it was with your wife or your family or with some other friends you said we need to do something like i need to devote my life now to helping others live as healthy leaders well, tell us about the beginning of unhurried living and that kind of holy discontent behind it.
2: Yeah. So, you know, again, I say, I met, mentioned my mentor, met him, uh, gosh, now 30 years ago. And I was a part of a nonprofit with him and a number of others who'd become mentors to me. They were my spiritual fathers, spiritual big brothers. We were together in that nonprofit for probably 20 years when I wrote An Unhurried Life. And what began to happen is that book began to touch readers and it began to open new doors. And in my vision, it had always been I'm going to be uh, part of this nonprofit until I die. That was my vocational vision. You know, I I just assumed that, you know, the, these this is my community. This is this is these are the people who helped me sink my roots deep into Jesus. This is just where I'll live my life. And there came a moment about uh, 5 years ago where what I thought the book was going to be Uh, was going to help the nonprofit I'd been a part of for so many years, suddenly it became clear to me, I am now looking at a fork in the road. This is two paths, not one path. And I actually have to make a choice. And uh, the energy was moving along the lines of moving uh, toward working full-time on this theme. And so uh, that was kind of a hard place. It was hard to say farewell to a place that had been a spiritual home for me for most of my adult life. But what was happening was this metaphor, this hurry metaphor, unhurry metaphor was becoming, you know, uh, it was becoming the vision for our shared ministry, my wife and I. And so um, I was in the middle of writing An Unhurried Leader at that time. It had stalled and I couldn't figure out why. And then when we finally sort of parted ways and I stepped out, stepped off of having been given the executive director role which I thought I knew what that meant. And then suddenly I realized I'm the executive director of nonprofit and there's a path in front of me that doesn't involve this nonprofit. Uh, The minute I stepped away and we began the process of forming the nonprofit and doing all the stuff you have to do, uh, I finished the first draft in like two or three months. Mm. And so I knew there was energy there and There were new doors that were opening. And so that was sort of the genesis of Unhurried Living. Um, The result is I get a chance kind of, uh, I'm not looking for this, but I just get a chance to end up in a lot of leadership environments to share this idea. And in many ways, it's the realization of a vision God gave us way back in our 20s, way back when we first met our mentors. And the summary of that vision was you will share your lives. And the focus of that vision was with leaders. And in our mind, as a pastoral couple, the leaders were pastors. So mostly we assumed we would share our lives with leaders. Well, what we didn't know is that that vision from 1990 was not going to be realized in 1991. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that a vision wasn't going to be something we did first. It was going to be someone we, we became first. And we didn't realize that would be a 20-some year journey. So that's a little bit of the story behind the formation of this this new nonprofit and this new ministry.
0: Well, and I, I think there's something really amazing about even just thinking, you know, unhurried living uh, is something that began in 1990 and took many years to come to fruition or to come into being. It was and quite unhurried in the it process. It was very unhurried <laughs> in the process, which which I think is very profound. But I, I think my question is like, what, like in that process of, of having that vision sort of work itself out and having God, um, continue to like birth that in you. What are the things that changed within you and your wife in that during those seasons? Like what are the big sweeping narrative moments or changes that happened?
2: Yeah. So, you know, again, as a 29 year old, we, we get this vision, literally the vision came in a one minute of silence at the Urbana Conference in Urbana-Champaign, Illinois, InterVarsity's Mission Conference, every three years, in one morning session, I actually found the Vimeo video of that actual moment, uh, and it was one minute of silence with 18,000 people. And the vision was, again, we'll, you'll share your lives, and, and our understanding was with leaders. Well, my first thought was, I got a vision from God. Oh, man, I'm going to make this happen you know, with all my 20 something energy. And then I sat down with this same mentor who, you know, later came up with this pitcher cup saucer plate metaphor. And his comment very graciously was, you know, Alan, you, you might want to let God season you a bit. (laughs) And then I remember somewhere early on reading, uh, I think it's July 6 in my utmost for his highest. Hmm. I can't quote the title off the top of my head, but the image of that Entry is uh, God gives you a vision on the mountaintop. And essentially, you assume that it is now an assignment uh, from God of something you're supposed to do. But then Chambers uses the metaphor that God takes you from the mountaintop where you receive the vision down into the valley. And he uses kind of harsh language as he says, to batter you Mm. into the shape of the vision. My editor didn't like it when I wanted to use that word in in an unhurried leader. I'm not remembering if that word lasted. This was a spirituality from, you know, a number of decades ago where we would use sort of strong language like that, uh, batter you, that God would batter you. Um, But what I would say is um, if we had found a way to realize the vision in our late 20s, young 30s, there would have been way too much us in it. Uh, We would have tried to find our identity in the realization of that vision. And we wouldn't have survived that. I really believe we would not have survived that. Um, So in a sense, and this is an image you see in a lot of that kind of Oswald Chambers, Andrew Murray, deeper life spirituality kind of stream... That often they love to use the image of something that has to die and then be raised. And when it dies, part of what dies in, in, in it is your attachment to that thing, your need for it to be realized to prove you're really somebody. So, what happened is, you know, from 90 when the vision came, we basically went on a journey of downward mobility. By that, I mean this. My resume went from, college pastor at Big Church in the San Fernando Valley, to being laid off, to interviewing with a couple of very well-known Southern California pastors who are on the radio and who've written book after book after book, and boy, here goes my resume, man. We're just going into the clouds, man. This is going to be really exciting, to a moment where I'm offered the position at a 10,000-plus member church to be a college pastor again. Hooray, hooray, hooray. Can't wait. And then the guy who would have been my supervisor telling me the story of a week earlier being hospitalized for stress-related heart pain. Mm. Hmm. And my wife and I look at each other and go, I don't think this is a place we can be who we are. Mm. So instead, we say yes to a little church of 400 that used to be the big, big, big church with the popular pastor on the radio. And now is just mostly a broken little church trying to do its best and trying to heal. And from there, we went uh, to Orange County, an hour south, planted a church that didn't survive into a sabbatical. This mm-hmm. is 10 years after the uh, the vision. And uh, then we just kind of labored in invisibility for most of the next 10 years. And uh, what I would say is the vision died uh, in the sense that, hmm, I don't know what it's supposed to be, but I don't think it's going to be the thing we thought it was going to be. Mm. And in that dying, then when an unhurried life came out uh, and was as well received as it was, that I began to realize looking back, that was kind of a moment of resurrection. Mm. And it took a few years before uh, that began to be a a metaphor for uh, our lives as well as our work. And so a lot of uh, honorary living has not been us with this strategic implementation of a 20 some year old vision. It's really been more of a receiving what God's raising up, you know, humble yourself in the sight of God and he will lift you up kind of became our strategic plan.
0: just wonder, what would you have to say to the pastor or the leader right now who feels like they're in that death, that dying season? Like what, what kept you uh, what kept you moving forward in that season, or in the season of, of uh, kind of nothingness where <laughs> the, the downward mobility, um, what keeps
2: you in that? So I think the gift I was given, that I am not first a pastor. I am not first a worker for God. I am first a beloved child of God. I was that before I became an intern at a local church in Northern California. Uh, I, I was that when I became a junior high pastor and then a college pastor. And then when I stepped into another role, I have never been what I do. But the great trap of entering ministry is that's exactly who we think we are. And in some ways, um, Success in what I do is a bigger problem than failure in what I do when it comes to the identity thing. So I think the fact that I had what many would have considered a a failed journey in ministry for so long in the sense that instead of the graph going up and having impressive quarterly uh, performances, um, I was moving downward in terms of quantitative measure and all that. Um, I actually, I think, was a kind of gift that I was learning more and more. You know what? I simply am not what I do. I'm not what I do. I'm not what I achieve. I'm not what I possess. I'm not what people say about me. You know, Henry. that's Henry Nouwen's sort of way of unpacking the temptation of Jesus. And the, I, I think the, um, the relative lack of visible success was a training ground. For me, so that in fact, when Unhurried Life came out and then later that year got a Christianity Today Book Award, um, 10, 20 years ago, if that had happened to me, I think that would have destroyed me. But now I didn't need it to be a wildly successful book uh, because that wasn't my identity. My identity was I'm the award winning author of blah, blah, blah. blah. <laughs> I don't need that. I can be grateful for it. And in fact, I am. But now I was receiving it as a gift, not as like absolutely desperately needed nourishment or something.
1: Mm, mm. Man, this is so good. You know, we live in a culture, no surprise to any of us here, in terms of hurry sickness. And we know it's important that we slow down. But I think there are pastors saying, you know, okay, Alan, like, I agree with you. Like, I should should live an, an unhurried life. I should be an unhurried leader. But do you know the culture I live in? Do you know the church culture I live in? Do you know what my boss says? I wish I could do it, but I'm not the senior pastor. So (laughs) if I'm not the senior pastor, I'm in a system. So what would you say to those who maybe feel stuck to say, I'm all in on what you're saying personally, Alan, I just can't change the culture because I'm not even in the second chair. I might be the third, fourth, seventh, tenth chair in. What, What would you say to somebody like that?
2: Well, so first I would say I totally empathize because uh, when I started this journey, I was a college pastor in a big church and I had been the, a little bit of a golden boy doing great and never, you know, really playing by the rules and <clears throat> being about as busy as anybody. And then I start practicing things like solitude and silence and listening prayer. And in our Bible teaching, you know, hyperactive church culture, I started getting labeled the mystic. And let's just say that was not a label of affection. (laughs) (laughs) That was not, oh, Alan, oh, he's our resident mystic. You know, I wasn't getting labeled as A.W. Tozer. I I was being labeled the weird out of touch guy who's not playing on the team like he used to.
1: This is like where they use the air quotes, the mystic, right? Mystic, yeah,
2: (laughs) exactly. And so um, I think in many ways, the reason I was laid off was because I wasn't a team player. Mm. That's the language that would have been used. Now, I can actually talk about that now. um, And, you know, without bitterness. In fact, I can talk about the fact that there are still people at that church 30 years later from that college ministry. I don't know if any other department from 30 years ago can say that, huh. but um, I can talk about fruit that lasted. So I know how hard it is. and I, it, So I've often found myself in organizational environments where the values I believe Jesus was calling me to, and he's my first allegiance, were at times coming into conflict. Now, I say that uh, with, the, uh, with the intent back then to honor those I was accountable to. And to not just blow it off, hey, I'm just following Jesus, tough luck on what you want me to do. <laughs> I, I really believe that the fruit of my life, as I pursued this rhythm, I believe Jesus was calling me to, could actually bear the kind of fruit that my supervisors were expecting. Now, I might not take the same path. I might kind of be Daniel-like, hey, uh, you know, I feel called to eat veggies. And, you know, you want me to eat this rich royal food. Can you just test it? and see if the way I go at this bears the quality of fruit that you were hoping for and excuse me by and large I think that's often that was often true so you may find yourself in a place where pursuing something that's healthier for your soul may look a little bit out of alignment you're not walking lockstep and that's a hard place to be but uh, but I think You know, again, my first allegiance was never to, you know, an organization that I was serving. My first allegiance was to be a a follower of Jesus, a a beloved son of God. So, um, and the other thing is, uh, at least for me, you know, going into a role, uh, I would try to be honest about the rhythm of life I felt called to follow. And I would talk about some of the patterns of life that I felt were important. And you know, if that didn't work for the organization, then they're free not to bring me in. I don't think that ever actually happened. Uh, the other thing I would say is um, it's, it's very hard when if, if you believe you are what you do, then what your supervisors say about you is going to have a, a profound impact on your soul. And so in an odd way, you end up finding yourself sort of being a a people pleaser, which actually none of us should be in relation to another person, even if we honor those over us, even if we seek to work within the communal framework that we've agreed on. Still, my first allegiance is not to my supervisor. My first allegiance really is to God. And that doesn't take me out of the system, but it just keeps things in order. So I don't know if that's helpful, but but um, I do understand the challenge of not having the hand, uh, the, the the primary reins. I think you know there are times when we're called to live a certain way within a certain cultural environment that may be a little different than an environment. It doesn't make me super spiritual, super super holy, better than anybody else. It actually, if I do it right, makes me more humble uh, in that uh, setting. So I think there's always the opportunity to follow Jesus, not just what he teaches, not just what he does in the work of ministry, but his way. And that's a lot of where Unhurried Living is seeking to speak. What is the way of Jesus? Mm-hmm.
0: JRI,
1: I am so thankful for that conversation that we had with Allie. Alan is such a wise person, and I love how he started off um, as such a metaphor visual learner mm. myself. Um, even referring back to season one, season episode one, one episode uh, one. pitcher cup saucer plate, and how we're so tempted to think like cup plate, but we're called for pitcher cup saucer plate. And um, yeah, I, I just love that image. And I love he has a painting of that. How cool is that? So cool. And I really appreciated how just the way that he
0: really sparse that out for us was really 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 helpful. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate a lot of the the conversation just around unhurried living, unhurried life. I mean, so much good stuff. And I think too, it's something we all experience, but even to have someone that helps get us outside of that is such an important gift for us in this season of life that we live in.
1: Yeah, yeah. It reminded me of something that, I think it was James Brian Smith. Jim Smith said to me, um, we were in a conversation. Um, he said that of all the words, well, this is with Dallas Willard, You know, Dallas Willard kind of mentored and discipled and built into Jim Smith. He said, Dallas was asked, what is the most defining word of Jesus in the Gospels? And we might say like loving, forgiving, healing, whatever. And Dallas said the word unhurried. Hmm. And Jim was like, really? Like of all the words, unhurried? And Dallas said, show me a place where Jesus was in a hurry. <laughs> right mm-hmm. even people accusing him like mary and martha like where were you if you had been here our 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 brother would not have died or you know oh don't bother him my son has already died right and yet like jesus just was not in a hurry mm-hmm. and so if i'm a follower of jesus how do i live like jesus did by not being in a hurry when the culture around me says you must hurry even being ac- accusing jesus of not hurrying enough to be there. So that's that's always stuck with me. Um so yeah.
0: yeah. And and even how that is a pro, that's a that's a process. And I loved how he talked about the vision and then the vision coming to fruition being such a long Yes.
2: Season. Yes.
0: Um just hugely helpful to be reminded of like we are in this for the long haul. This is not like, oh, I've reached that. I've now become an unhurried person. It's like, you know, I I thought about it yesterday and I am today. Wow, it's amazing, but it is a process of and I like the way that he really was able to speak to solitude and silence. Um, and he said, uh, he he said, solitude helps the, the pardon me die that has to impress and be important.
1: Yeah. So That's, we don't just preach resurrection. We actually have to experience it. We have it. to experience it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
0: And one last thing that I thought was super helpful um, from, from this one is he, he made this beautiful statement, this almost, almost stinging statement Um about how we bring our thirst to ministry and not to God.
1: Yeah. That back that, to the cup and the plate idea. So yeah, good. yeah. And, yep.
0: and so true. I wonder how I wonder if my first few years of ministry, how I think I was trying to find so much of my of, of trying to quench my thirst in life and all of these things through ministry and not through God.
1: Yeah. And
0: yeah. yeah, just even recognizing how that's such an important place to continue to check in on.
1: Yeah. Well this is part one. Of what we're going to have is a two-part. So stick around for next week because if you enjoyed this, it gets even better in part two, and uh, we're really grateful for that. But we want to leave you with some resources and some questions. So, Doug, Doug, what are some resources that we can recommend to our listeners today? Yeah, we would love to recommend uh,
0: his two books: uh, "An Unhurried Life" and "An Unhurried Leader." We feel like both of these books are fantastic. And I just have a sense also with that, uh, his website uh, would be really great. And uh, it's uh, an unhurried life, unhurriedliving.com. unhurriedliving.com. So yep. please check that out as well. Jar, how about some questions?
1: Yeah. In addition to those resources and a lot of in line with what he was talking about with the pitcher, cup, saucer, plate concept, uh, when are you most tempted to reach to grab the pitcher and feel like we're the ones that should be pouring into other people? that we're the source? Where are you tempted? And this is a kind of a, a question that requires courage because it maybe requires some confession. But where are we tempted to be the one uh, the, the, to grab for the picture? And the second one is we're talking about being hurried and unhurried. What areas of your life could currently be described as hurried? And then what implications exist to move from hurried to unhurried? What areas of your life could be described as hurried? And then what implications would that have for your life to move from being hurried to being unhurried? So, Doug, why don't you uh, send us out here uh, as we leave? So, pastors and leaders, may you go today knowing that
0: you don't have to hurry, that God is not in a hurry, and that he calls you to come and join with him in the unhurried life. And as you go, may you be reminded constantly of the, the truth that you are a beloved child of God and that we can rest in that amazing, amazing life.